You know, when we say the name Jesus, sometimes I think that we forget exactly the power that's in that name. And tonight as we pick up verse 1 through 11 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, really the focus is actually on the name, the powerful name, the resurrection name of Jesus. In fact, the power of the resurrection itself. And when we think about Jesus, one of the things that's so very important for us as true believers in Christ is to remember there's exactly one name. There's only one Jesus. One of the great and difficult things that we face in our world is people's interpretation of who Jesus actually is. Because the Bible in great detail explains the one true king. And it does so not just in the New Testament, but it does so in the Old Testament. And in this passage that's before us, we find the Apostle Paul using the phrase according to the scriptures. And I want to draw your attention because many well-intentioned Bible-believing Christians look at that word scripture and they immediately think of the New Testament. They believe that the Apostle Paul is talking about something that when he writes his letters is not written yet. It's actually not talking at all about the New Testament. It is talking about the Old Testament. So when we talk about Jesus in this passage and who he is that is going to be dead, buried, and raised on the third day according to the scriptures... Those are the things that were said about Jesus in some cases a thousand years before he was born. A vast majority of them more than 700 years before he was born. Some of them five to 600 years before he was born. But the pieces of evidence of who Jesus is, what he would do, where he would be born, how he would die, what would happen to him at his death, where he would live, all of those things point to one Jesus. And that's the historical Jesus. The one that people argue about today as if there were another Jesus to choose from. So much so that there's a cult in our world that says they have a new testament of Jesus. There's only one testament of Jesus. It is the Bible's testament of Jesus. And if you have the wrong Jesus, you do not know God. And so we'll pick up in verse 1. And let's pray and ask God to speak through his word. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the power and the majesty, the wonder of your word tonight. And we pray as we read these 11 verses that we as a church would be encouraged and built up and strengthened. Lord, that we would understand the true gospel. There is a gospel. There is a savior. There is a Lord. But there's only one. We can't save ourselves You, Jesus, came to save us. And so, Lord, bless us with understanding. Help us to be bold with our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, so he's completed this very exhaustive treatment of spiritual gifting, in which he has proudly declared, boldly declared, without controversy declared that you could have all of the spiritual gifts in the world, but if you do not possess love, those things are useless. And so it is in the context of understanding what he's just said that he says, moreover. He's, in other words, adding to it. When you use the phrase, moreover, you're talking about there's more over that which has already been said. So, Moreover, brethren, whenever the word brethren is used, 
it's clearly pointing to believers. So this passage is written to believers as an addendum to what he has just said. And the reason for that is, is make no mistake, spiritual gifts only apply to those who are actually God's children, true children of the Spirit, those who are saved by grace and through faith, actually believing in the one and only Jesus the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one true God. And so he's being extremely specific. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you. He's saying there is a gospel, and that gospel and that gospel alone is what I've preached to you. It is the gospel, the good news, that is the offer of salvation to mankind. It is not religion that brings people to faith. It is believing in the only begotten Son of God. And the only begotten Son of God is clearly described, beginning in the Old Testament, validated with Jesus' life in the New. Which you also received and in which you stand. As Bible-believing Christians, you are saved by grace and through faith. You have believed in the only begotten Son of God. You have called upon the name of the Lord and you are saved because of it. But there's exactly one Jesus. You see, the world's religions say that there are many ways to describe Jesus and all of them are valid. That Jesus was nothing more than a prophet according to Islam. That he's the elder brother of Satan himself, Lucifer, according to Mormonism. That he is the Christ ideal, according to a Christian scientist, that he was actually not God, but man with, in essence, an understanding of God. These things are patently false, they're heretical. They're untrue. And Paul is about to make this case that unless you have the right Jesus, then you do not have a relationship with God. By which also you were saved. Do you see it? He's pointing to the one true gospel that is about the one Son of God, the one who is the light and the life, the one who is the living water, the one who is the great I am, the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament to come. I I have a book here I taught for a number of years, a, a class at Calvary Chapel Bible College called Christ in Prophecy. This is the textbook. This is all the messianic prophecies of the Bible written by Dr. Herbert Lockyer, and and in it, there are 486 various pieces of information about the Messiah, all of them from the Old Testament. And so I want you to lock in on that a little bit. If you want to get a copy, you can get them like this in paperback. They're fairly inexpensive. But Dr. Lockyer boils most of it down to 300 key prophetic elements. The life the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, the price that would be paid for him, all of these things, these pieces of information, pointing us so that when Messiah came, no one would be able to misunderstand who he was. And tonight we'll focus in on that in the latter portions of our study. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And here it is. The three basic points of the Apostles' Creed. The three most important things that we need to believe about Jesus. 
these three points, if you will, that cause you to look at who Jesus really is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Point one. That Jesus personally went to Calvary's cross in your place to die for your sin. According to the scriptures. Now do you see it? You see it's not a New Testament thing at all. It's a Psalm 22 thing. It's an Isaiah 52, 53 thing. It's a Zechariah chapter 12 thing. According to the scriptures. That he was buried. It's a Psalm 16 thing. Thousand years before Jesus was born. And that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul was not lugging around a Bible. Nobody owned one. One did not exist. Wasn't codified. The books that we call the New Testament were being authored at this time. There may have been a select number of copies, probably of the Gospel of Mark, at the time that Paul was writing. But there were certainly no copies of even the Gospels in common circulation. So when Paul writes these words, he's saying, this gospel that I preach to you comes not from what we call the New Testament, comes from what we call the Old Testament. The scriptures declared it. And that he, that he being Jesus, the one in whom you have believed, was seen by Cephas, Peter. Then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. How, how strong do you think the case would be in a court of law if there were 500 people standing in one specific place and they saw the same event and all of them testified, most of them with their lives, that they saw that event. How strong would that evidence be? It would be bulletproof in a court of law. Let me just put it that way. That would make a slam dunk case. And he says, of whom the greater part remain present to the present. In other words, they're still alive. You could go talk to them if you wanted to. You could validate these things for yourself. Some have fallen asleep, a euphemism for they had died. And after that, he was seen by James, his own half-brother. Who also died for the testimony that Jesus was in fact Messiah. Then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul arrested there on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goats? Who are you, Lord? For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's the reason that Paul was on the road to Damascus. He'd stood there and held the garments of the Sanhedrin at the stoning of Stephen. And now he's off to go collect a few more scalps for his totem pole. A few more trinkets for his collection of those that he had put to death. He was out Xing out bombs on the side of his bomber. I, I, I need to get some more here. Paul persecuted the church of God. That's who writes these things. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. 
But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Hallelujah. For in me dwells no good thing in and of my own flesh. Amen. All that is in me that is good is of God. It's his grace working through us to accomplish his good pleasure. That's what happens. When you've had an encounter with the true and the living God, his grace, a grace that is sufficient for all of us, is in you. It works through you. It works out of you. It's God's grace that works in me. It's God's grace that works in our church. It's God's grace that sent that mission team down to Belize. It's God's grace that cares for us every day and takes us along life's journey. And therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundational truth of every believer's life. If this very specific man, whom the Bible said would be born in Bethlehem, whom the Bible said would be related to King David, whom the Old Testament declared before the capital punishment of crucifixion was even invented, that he would be crucified, that the Bible declares all these pieces of information, that specific Jesus is whom we believe in. I don't believe in an ideal. I believe in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I don't believe in a way of life. I believe that Jesus Christ, the God-man, died on Calvary's cross for my sins, that he was placed in a grave, and that three days later, just exactly as the scriptures say, Death could not hold him. And he was raised. Exactly as Jesus declared about the Old Testament prophet, Jonah. For no sign shall be given unto you, you Pharisees, save the sign of the prophet Jonah. That Jesus would be three days in the grave. The prophet Daniel declaring when he would come into Jerusalem. All of these things lead us to conclude that there was a real Jesus. And that real Jesus died for me. That real Jesus defeated the grave. You see, my problem was declared long before I became aware that I was a sinner. The Bible said... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? I had a problem. It came to me through Adam. We're all born sinners. And just exactly as scripture declares there in Romans 5, just as through one man sinned the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. So my problem is pretty clear, and the proof of that is every last person will one day die unless the Lord raptures you first. And that happened to Elijah and Enoch as well. They disappeared, but that was the hand of God. Everybody else, double X's through your eyes. You're out of here. That's actually a proof that the Bible's true. Did you know that? If anyone ever begins to live eternally without Jesus, we've got a problem, but they never will. If we could somehow make these packages of meat that are our tents last indefinitely, then one could say scripture's not true, but because all men die, the Bible says that's a result of sin. Verse 17, Romans chapter 5. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace 
and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. My problem was solved by Jesus. And all I need to do is receive it and believe it. Because I can't take care of it myself. All of the science in the world can't save us. Did you know that? All of the knowledge in the world actually cannot save you. Did you know that? All of the philosophy in this world cannot save you. Did you know that? All of the religion in the world cannot save you. Did you know that? Only believing on the only begotten Son of God can save you. Resulting in grace coming into your life, the forgiveness of your sin, and your name being etched in the Lamb's book of life, and forever your debt is paid in heaven. Resulting in freedom from the penalty of your sin, which is death. And though you die, yet you shall live. Amen? This is cardinal doctrine. This, this is what we believe. And it's what we need to be able to articulate. Because you know what? Here's what's going to happen to you. Your Mormon neighbor is going to come and say, well, we believe in Jesus too. Jehovah's Witness is going to come to your door. We believe in Jesus. A Muslim is going to talk to you. We believe in Jesus. A Christian scientist is going to tell you, we believe in Jesus. The question is, which Jesus is that? Because according to the scriptures, there's a very specific Jesus that we believe in. And it is not the New Testament that tells us what those pieces of information are. It's the Old Testament. And so as you think on this passage, there's a radical importance to good theology. The apostles' doctrine, the apostles' creed is found here. Look, look you, you're going to be surrounded by people who believe that they are Christians. But they do not believe in the one true Jesus. There are people in our midst that are universalists. They just simply believe that everybody ultimately goes to heaven. I talk to them virtually every week. Well, I just think God is good, and so he saves everybody in the end. Well, the Jesus that they don't believe saves is the one that said, unless a man be born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who said you must be born again is the one that they have problems with. Because not everybody does believe. And certainly not everybody believes in the one true Jesus. They believe in a lot of variations. And so to make it simple for us, there are three points of importance here. The real truth of the gospel. One is Christ died according to the scriptures. That's the truth of the message. If Christ did not die, then the message of the cross is useless. If Christ was knocked out, if Christ was asleep, if Christ was on drugs, if Christ was something other than D-E-A-D, dead, then the gospel is not true. Christ died, according to the scriptures. According to the Old Testament, the Messiah would give his life a ransom for us. The prophet Isaiah said that. And that's what Jesus did. He died. The second thing that we see here is that he was buried in the grave. And in fact, the Bible, the Old Testament, goes even further that in death he would be buried with the rich, but he would be crucified with criminals. That's the Old Testament. Those are pieces of information that the Pharisees had before Jesus showed up on the scene because they were contained in what we would call the Tanakh, the Old Testament. The books of wisdom, the prophets, the Torah. 
You see, Jesus was well known before he came because the scriptures declared that Christ would be raised from the dead on the third day in the Old Testament. And I see Christians constantly going, well, you know, it's just like as long as you believe. Can I tell you that faith in faith is foolishness? Faith in nothing is nothing. Faith is no stronger than what it is placed in. Do you understand that? Your faith is in Christ Jesus, then it's in the Son of God, the creator of the universe. But if your faith is in religion, if your faith is in Calvary Chapel, if your faith is in me, then your faith is in vain. We have faith in the one true God. We have faith that his son, Jesus Christ, died on Calvary's cross. We have very, very, very specific, very narrow, focused faith. My faith is in Christ alone. I believe Jesus died on Calvary's cross. Jesus of Nazareth was laid in that tomb. And that Jesus, who the Old Testament calls the Messiah, the anointed one, was raised three days later. And that risen Christ was seen alive. There's overwhelming evidence of his resurrection. I shared with you some time ago that just the the handful of things that, that are commonly repeated about Jesus makes the resurrection an eyewitness event about which there should be no controversy. There is way less controversy about Jesus Christ coming to this region that we call Judea that he lived his life for roughly 32, 33 years that he was murdered by the Romans, he was buried and reportedly killed, and when he was killed, he was placed in a tomb, and then he was raised, and the crazy part is that he was seen alive. And those witnesses were eyewitnesses. They were not somebody said, somebody said. They were people who knew him. They were people like his own mom, his own half-brother, Men that he had spent nearly three years with personally wandering the Judean hills and the Galilee. And then you add to it what Paul says here. This is the only place this information is found. That there was on one occasion Jesus was seen after he was raised from the dead by 500 people at once. You take 500 people, give them a single piece of information. It could get around the world in a fairly short period of time. And they're still alive to be questioned about their testimony. Paul says very clearly, most of them were still with him when he wrote these words. They could have been asked. They would have told other people. And because we, that, during that time, it was a time of oral tradition. People would share those stories openly in the marketplace. I saw him. Jesus died. Jesus was buried and Jesus was raised. It's a historical fact. And over the centuries, over the millennia, over the millennia, millions upon millions of people, to this day, people still surrender their very life for the one name, Jesus. People don't do that for a lie. They don't do it for some scheme. They don't even do that for money. You you walk up to somebody, and if you had the capacity to do it, and I'm not suggesting anybody does this, but if somebody had, let's just throw a round number out, $50 million. And you could take $50 million and put it in a couple of briefcases and drag it around with you. If you walk up to someone and you say, I'll give you $50 million if you let me shoot you you will find not one taker. Not one. Why? Because inherent within us is a desire to live. Jesus didn't ask you to give up your life. He asked you 
to accept that he gave up his life for you. That's the real Jesus. It's not about you being religious. That Jesus was seen alive. So if we could start doing a little bit of mathematics and we start putting some of these pieces of information together, and I encourage you, get, read it for yourself. Most of you probably know that when you have the science of probability and statistics, if you have five things and you have five other things and these five things weigh on these five things, that these five things are multiplied times those five things. Because this thing is all five of those, 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 and this thing affects all five of those. So if I have five things and I give it five other things, the probability is one in 25. Now imagine that you're dealing with things that are completely out of your control. Let's work this a little bit. Let's get our minds going tonight. And I'll give you a little clue. I, in reading and studying on this, I'm drawing for, from Dr. John Ankerberg, from uh, Dr. Lockyer, John Weldon, Walter Kaiser, and most uh, specifically from Dr. Peter Stoner, who's deceased, gone home to be with the Lord, but he was the professor emeritus of mathematics at Westmont University. So Paul says that this Jesus was the Jesus according to scriptures. If we could start looking at some of the things that are said about this Jesus, and if you have one guy that fulfills all the things that are in the Old Testament about this one Jesus, the more things you add to it, it gets significantly more mathematically improbable that one person could be that person, doesn't it? You can say yes, because that's exactly what happens. the more pieces of the story that you add to it, the harder it gets for one person to be the person. If you begin with one thing, add another thing, you got two things. Add two more things to it, four. You get the picture? Four, 16. doesn't take very long for it to get pretty crazy. But now imagine that some of those things are monumentally complex. Imagine that you would think up, let's just take 50 of the things that are specifically said about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And by the way, the Dead Sea Scrolls contain more than 50 of them in the pieces that we have. So those are there without contest. That we understood that those things were said about Messiah before Jesus was born. That's an absolute. Let's say you manage to, speak, to think up 50 very specific things about somebody you're, you're going to meet in the future. How probable do you think it is that you're actually going to be correct about any person that's ever lived? Well, let me tell you this. The mathematical probabilities of you coming up with 50 things about one person at any point in time are mathematically impossible. Can't happen. Think of how difficult it would be for somebody to pick the birthplace of a single U.S. president. Just randomly, they walk around the streets, yeah, you know, George Washington was going to be born in Mount Vernon. That's a pretty tough thing to do, wouldn't it? Now imagine that that person did that 2,700 years before George Washington was born. Before there was the United States. Before there was a place called Virginia. Before there was any colonies, before there was anybody even here other than the indigenous Native Americans who lived here before Europeans got here. That'd be pretty tough, wouldn't it? And yet Micah did exactly that about the Messiah 700 years before Jesus came, named Bethlehem of Epaphra as the birthplace of Messiah. How do you think it would be, how hard do you think it would be to predict a method of execution for somebody? 
when that method of execution hadn't even been invented and wouldn't be invented for over 500 years. But you would name specifically that they would be pierced through their hands and feet, and yet there was no record up to that point in time and wouldn't be for 500 years that anyone was ever crucified. But you name that they would be pierced through their hands and feet. It'd be pretty tough, wouldn't it? That's what David did when he wrote Psalm 22. That's what Zechariah did when he authored chapter 12 of the book of Zechariah. Or how about the exact date and time that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem, except do that almost 500 years before the Messiah came? Just pick a random day. See, the reason these things are important is Paul said according to the scriptures. Paul said, according to the scriptures, this Jesus would be murdered and buried and resurrected. So when you start putting those things together and then there's only one person in history that's ever had all these things happen to them, it gets pretty likely that that's the hand of God authoring the word of God, doesn't it? And let me tell you why. It's some of these prophetic examples. These are written by different people in different countries at different times, none of whom knew each other. They they could not collude together. That couldn't happen. And so as you begin to look at the chance possibilities of a person being born in any specific city, You start to get into the area of, given the small nature of towns then, still odds that are in the one and three, four hundred thousand range. Now most of you are going to say, well, if you give me a one in four hundred thousand chance, that's not really good odds, is it? That's just for one thing. That's for being born in a specific city in the Middle East. Now imagine that so many of these pieces of information were actually arranging stuff that was not only in advance, but they were in control of other people. Like how do you arrange to be virgin born? Anybody got got one for that? Or being considered by other people that you're a prophet like Moses. Or arrange to have your executioners gamble for your clothes. You get the picture? And each one of those Statistical odds are multiplied times the original grouping of odds, which are all multiplying one on top of another. Now, why is this important to us? Because each time you add something to it, it gets more unlikely that anyone could ever end up fulfilling those those prophetic pieces. Now, I will grant you, it's very likely that somebody could fake One, two, maybe three of them. Maybe you had some really nefarious Pharisee who decided, you know what, I know what it says about Messiah, so we're going to make sure that these specific things happen or don't happen. You might might have had a few things that could have fallen into that category. But when you start putting hundreds of them together... When you take just the top 50 or so and start doing the, the math, it becomes crazy. It becomes mind-boggling, mind-numbing. And here's the math. I don't want to share this with you. So Dr. Stoner begins to figure out, you know, we're just going to take a bunch of college students and we're going to work for a semester on this one problem. These estimates were worked out by 12 different classes, over 600 individuals. They weighed all the factors, time, date, place, known geographic regions, populations, number of cities, the history of the region, who would be in given areas. And so they started out, they figured, you know, let's just make it easy. Let's just go with eight of the top things that the Old Testament says about Jesus. So the first one that they picked was him being born in Bethlehem. Prophet Micah names that city very clearly. They work out the population. They work the number of generations that was known to have lived at that time. They rounded it off to one in 300,000. Then they started working in eight more, and they came up with a number 
of 1 to 10 in the 17th power. So 10 with 17 zeros after it. Now I want to give you an idea of exactly how big that number is. This is 8. So let's say that Jesus was crucified. He would be murdered. That he was going to have the price on his head, 30 pieces of silver. Everybody knows that one, right? There's a handful of things that probably every person in this room could say that you know the Old Testament said that about Jesus. That he would be crucified amongst thieves. The Old Testament says that. That he'd be crucified, that his feet, hands and feet would be pierced. The Old Testament says that. Those are simple things. Just pick eight of them. Comes up with 10 to the 17th power. If, for sake of illustration, that would be a silver dollar. Everybody have one of these? You can get these things. They're, they're actually gold-plated. They're not real. If it was gold, we could all go to dinner. But that's a, that's a U.S. silver dollar. Anybody know how big the state of Texas is? It's big, isn't it? You ever driven across Texas? It's big, it's flat. It's got armadillos. <laughs> now, for those of you that care about such things, it's 268,870 square miles. 268,870 square miles. And you see how thin that is. Now imagine that you covered the state of Texas two feet deep with these. Blindfold a person, paint one of these red, throw it anywhere in any level of those coins in the state of Texas, blindfold somebody, spin them around in circles, take them to the state of Texas, drop them off somewhere in the state, and tell them on the first try, fetch out the red coin. That's 10 to the 17th. That's just eight. When you start adding numbers, when you start multiplying things that have several hundred thousand in them times each other, the numbers get really big, really fast. Because you do that twice, you're over, you're over billions. The next time, you're over trillions. The next time, you're over quadrillions. You get the picture? Jesus fulfilled at least 50 very specific things in his life. So Dr. Stoner took the next step. He would think that he would do something like that. So he decided, you know, we might as well carry this out. So state of Texas covered with silver dollars. That was a pretty good one, don't you think? Decided to do 48. Knocked a couple off. They had 50 clearly identified. They said, look, we know that this historical Jesus was so clearly according to the scriptures, that they wanted to do the math behind what that would look like. So in running the math, most of you realize that atoms have a nucleus, protons, electrons, and a whole bunch of really tiny particles spinning around them, right? Electrons are very, very, very tiny. And so when they began to do the math on 48 of them, multiplying them out, they came to one to... 10 and the 157th power. To give you an idea, if you took four electrons and you could count four in one second, and you counted four electrons every second, day and night, for 19 million years, you'd have an inch worth of electrons. Four a second. For 19 million years. To give you an idea. The the odds that you could have one person. In any period of time. Fulfill 48 of the key messianic prophecies. Said about Jesus. According to the scriptures in the Old Testament. Here's what happens to you. When you start doing the math. It would take a ball of electrons. Approximately 13 billion light years in diameter that's slightly smaller than the entirety of the known universe now grab your friend mr scientist put him in a rocket ship and send him anywhere in the known universe with an electron microscope and paint one electron red and say you got to go find the one red electron anywhere in the known universe and you still would not reach 10 to the 157th power So when you read Jesus according to the scriptures, 
When you read the one who died according to the scriptures, when you read the one who was buried according to the scriptures, when you read the one who was risen according to the scriptures, it's the Jesus that's the pick of one electron in the known universe. Do you understand what I'm saying? Dr. Emile Boré, one of the world's foremost doctors on mathematics, made a declaration a number of years ago, and what he said was, when you reach past one to the 50th power, one with 10 with 50 zeros after it, you have reached an impossible stage. There are potentially 486 pieces of information about Messiah in the Old Testament. There are surely at least 300, depending on how you classify that information. If you take a conservative effort and you chop that up and you say, well, we'll take 15% of that, that gives you 48. And 48 is one electron in the entire universe. That's a real specific Jesus, don't you think? And the world says, well, no, all roads lead to heaven. No, they don't. There is exactly one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He was born in Nazareth. He's the one and only. He's the one that Paul was referring to. He's the one that Paul taught It was that good news that Jesus Christ, God's own son, came to this earth. And we had all of this information about what would happen, where he would live, where he would be born, how he would do his ministry, what manner he would die, that he would be beaten, that his clothes would be gambled for. Think of that one. Do you think if the Pharisees had that piece of information or the Romans had that piece of information, they would have let the soldiers gamble for Jesus' clothes? Pretty sure they could have stopped that. That Judas Iscariot would be paid 30 pieces of silver. You, you see, Jesus is real. Jesus is the real deal. That's why this resurrection account is so powerful. It was that Jesus that these people saw. It was that Jesus these people died for that testimony. It was the real Jesus that they were proclaiming. It was not some Christ ideal. He was not just a prophet like Moses. He was the Holy One of Israel. He was related directly to King David. He was born in the town of Bethlehem. He was born to a virgin betrothed to a man. And every single one of those pieces, all they do is say to us, you and I sitting here today, man, I know God. I know Jesus personally. I know the one who created those atoms, those molecules, those electrons. The sheer number of people that saw Jesus alive. Mary Magdalene, the other women at the tomb, Peter, the travelers on the road to Emmaus, the disciples behind the closed door, the 11 disciples, including Thomas, then the apostles themselves, more than 500 at once, Jesus' own brother James, and those who watched him ascend unto heaven, every last one of them said, I saw him. That message is the message. And that message is the only message that can save. That that very specific Jesus came and died, was buried in the grave, and raised three days later. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. If you're here tonight and you have never believed in that Jesus, pastors are going to come forward and be available right up here up front. Here's the great news. The good news of the gospel. What Paul said was, 
Good news. That's what gospel means. All you got to do is believe that. And ask Christ into your life. And he will save you. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be saved. Not could be if they do something right. But will be saved. And so when you talk to people about Jesus, if you already know the Lord, which is a vast majority of you, be bold about what you believe. Tell them, yes, I'm a stone-cold Jesus freak. I, I believe in the risen Savior. I believe Christ died for me personally, and I believe the only reason I'm going to heaven is because he died for me personally and was raised, and because he is raised, so will I one day be raised. Amen? Father, we pray tonight, Lord, we ask tonight, God, if there's anyone here, or if there's a single person in this building that has never confessed you as Savior and Lord, that right now, this very moment, they'd get up from where they are and just come forward. And Lord, that they would confess that you, Jesus, are the only way and truth and life, and no one comes to the Father but by you. And so, Lord, we are so grateful that the gospel is simple. That it's a message that needs to be received and believed. It's, it's not a logical argument, Lord, that we make. It's, it's simply truth. But that truth is rational. That truth is logical. But, Lord, we believe that you are the only way that anyone ever sees heaven. And so, God, we thank you for the simplicity of that message. Let us not mess it up, Lord. As we preach the truth to others, Lord, would we ourselves live lives of truth, freed from the bondage of sin and death, Lord. Never, Lord, do we want to sin, but we don't want to stumble across the finish line, Lord. We want to be bold with our faith and run the race well, that you would be proud of us. And so, God, we commit our lives afresh and anew to you. Thank you for the truth, Lord, of the scriptures. That those scriptures declared before you ever came, Jesus, what you were going to do, where you were going to go, what you would be, what would happen to you. Lord, thank you for bolstering our faith tonight. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.